Let me start. When I was asked to come, I was asked to talk to you about two things, the 2018 election, and that by implication means a little bit about 2020, and then the Rules uh, Committee, how it operates and what it will be doing during this, uh, this particular time frame. Let me talk quickly about 2018, because it's the predicate for everything that's happening. Um, you know, 2018 was a very interesting election. Uh, and, uh, you know, despite what everybody wants to say, it's a referendum election. It was a midterm on a Republican president, and the election was more about President Trump than anything else, whether he was on the ballot or not. And we actually went into that election better prepared than I have ever seen a majority to go into what we knew from the very beginning would be a very challenging time. Nobody's had a good midterm uh, since 2002, when uh, President Bush obviously was operating in the shadow of 9-11, extraordinarily popular, and we were able to defy history and pick up uh, six congressional seats uh, in that, that year. Uh, this year, you know, in 2018, we knew we were going to have a tough time. And we went into it with, number one, uh, some, something we didn't have in 06 or 08, honestly, a very good record to run on. We were in a period of relative peace uh, in terms of post-9-11 period and great prosperity. Low unemployment rate, wonderful job growth, finally wages moving up. Republican Congress had been very consequential, not only in partisan things like the tax cut and deregulation, where we did a lot working uh, in concert with the administration, but also, frankly, if you were sort of in a blue district or a purple district, you could run on veterans' issues. You could run on... Uh, the, uh, the job that we had done in human trafficking. You could, there were a whole series of bipartisan things that had been accomplished, uh, didn't get as much publicity because they weren't as controversial, but they gave you an issue portfolio if you were a Barbara Comstock or something like that. You could actually run on something that could appeal to your district. Um, and we had a great committee. I will tell you the NRCC was as well prepared as I've ever seen it. Excellent staff, Steve, my friend Steve Stivers, did an unbelievable job, and we had a whole series of weapons we had never had before, the Congressional Leadership uh, Fund that uh, Speaker Ryan had set up. Uh, believe me, I've done a lot of elections. We have never had anything that spent millions of dollars like that in quasi-coordination, not legal or illegally, but, I mean, you can, look, you just watch where they buy stuff. You see the polling information they put up, and it's pretty easy to match your steps together. So we went in, and we went in with, I would argue, a, a great set of candidates. I mean, the people that we had in the seat, and that we lost, the Carlos Carbellos of the world, the Jeff Denham's of the world, the Barbara Comstock's of the world, stop and think about them as members. And they had all won, and many of them had won, in districts that Hillary Clinton had carried. So these were people that were used to winning in places that were tough. Uh, I was surprised, quite frankly, we lost as badly as we did. Uh, lost 40 seats. And I think, uh, I mean, I thought we would probably lose the majority. I did not think we'd lose 40. I thought we'd lose in the mid to high 20s someplace. Um, and the reason is pretty simple uh, in retrospect. Uh, that is the enthusiasm of the Democratic electorate. Uh, I remember uh, being at a uh, an NRCC retreat, wonderful pollster, and many of you here, of course, know Neil Newhouse, public opinion strategy. I think one of the really great pollsters in the country. And uh, Neil, uh, you know, laid out something. He said, let me talk to you about the good news and the bad news. He said, first, the good news. Your electorate is pretty charged up. And he put some numbers up there. And uh, Republican enthusiasm in 2010, at that point, 65% of our voters were anxious to vote. 
in 2010. In the same point in 2018, 64% of our people were anxious. So we had literally enthusiasm at about what we had when we had the greatest uh, victory that the Republicans have enjoyed since 1938 in 2010. He said, now let me show you the bad news. And he had Democratic enthusiasm numbers. Uh, and uh, in 2010, 38% of Democrats were anxious to vote in the, uh, in the upcoming election. Uh, this year, it was like, or 2018, 74%. Uh, and guess what? You go back and look at the numbers. We had the highest off-year turnout since 1912, over a century. Uh, and so both sides showed up in unusual numbers. Our side in enough numbers to normally win. I remember talking to my good friend uh, uh, Pete Sessions, who, believe me, I wish we're running the Rules Committee right now rather than me, because uh, there's nobody I like better or admire more than Pete, honestly. And uh, we talked uh, after the election. I actually thought, uh, I didn't see how you could beat Pete Sessions. If you've ever been down to his district, in, in Dallas, he is Mr. Dallas Congressman. Everybody in Dallas knows Pete Sessions. I've watched his district operation, and it's uh, one of the best I'd ever seen. Always these bright, talented, younger people. Amazing. I'd gone down and done a couple of events with him, toured some medical research facilities for him because uh, that was something we did as uh, chairman of Labor Age. Um, and, um, uh, you know, Pete doesn't approach anything without the utmost intensity. That's just who he is. So the campaign team, this is not one of these situations where they got, you know, complacent. There's just not a complacent bone in Pete Sessions' body. So the team was a great team exactly what you'd expect a former chairman of the NRCC to have. The district was a great district, and he lost. And he lost because the turnout there was higher than it had ever been. It broke every record in the book. Same thing beat John Culberson, who actually ran a pretty good race in Houston. Uh, you know, honestly, uh, I won't tell you which one of them said this. We were joking about it afterwards. I said, well, I lost to Ted Cruz uh, because, <laughs> because they both ran well ahead of Senator Cruz in their districts, but Beto O'Rourke was a phenomenon candidate. But the real thing was just massive Democratic turnout. And you can see that again and again and again. Now, so anybody that doesn't think that's coming in 2020 uh, isn't paying much attention. And we lost in 2018, I would argue, uh, a really incredible generation of, loser, of, of, of members. In fact, when, when I was the chairman of the NRCC in 2008, we lost 21 seats that year. Uh, I remember, which, by the way, Charlie Cook predicted 28, and everybody else was north of him. So we actually did better than, than history suggested we should. We actually beat five Democratic incumbents that year. Uh, it, uh, I remember somebody after the election said, God, Tom, it must have been tough to lose 21 seats. And I said, you know, it really was, but it wouldn't have been near as tough if I could have picked the 21. Uh, you know. <laughs> and that's the problem with this election. We lost, you know, look, you're not going to replace a Carlos Carvel. You're not, you know, again, a Jeff Denham, a Barbara Comstock. You go back and look at those members that we lost. And they were great members because they held tough ground. And they held tough ground because they did everything right. So to lose those kind of people uh, was uh, startling. Now, looking ahead to 2020, uh, you would think, 2018, oh my gosh, it's going to be terrible in 2020. I would, I would submit we don't know yet. And, and I would submit that for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, it's not going to be a referendum election. It's going to be a choice election. 
So it's going to be a lot, and not just about Donald Trump, it's going to be about who's on the other side. And as I watch the Democratic field scramble ever further to the left, and I think about campaigning on against Medicare for all, the abolition of ICE, wealth tax, 70% tax brackets, I'm thinking, I kind of like that. Uh, I think I can make my case pretty well, and I think we could make it, frankly, in a lot of the swing uh, suburbs we lost. I think, again, Karen Handel, who's a wonderful member, that district was a 20-plus percent, Romney district a 1.5 percent, Trump district, one of the 10 most highly educated districts in America, one of the uh, uh, 20 most affluent districts in America. Uh, that's ground we can come back and win in the right kind of presidential year against the right kind of opponent. Uh, so with 30-odd Trump seats out there, we have a chance. Now, history would tell you it's going to be a, a challenging election. Look, nobody has lost at the midterm and won the majority back in a presidential year since 1952. And no president has lost the majority uh, at a midterm and won it back in a re-election since 1948 uh, and Harry Truman. So, and that was a period of great volatility as well, the late 40s and early 50s in American politics. So, uh, um, you know, it, uh, history doesn't offer you a lot of interesting precedents, although, again, when, when uh, uh, I almost said Senator Castle, I, God, I wish that were true. Um, it should have been. Uh, Congressman Castle won in 92. We actually did something pretty unusual. The NRCC was first election in 100 years that a party lost the presidency and picked up seats. We actually plus 10. So you could actually, if you look at where we're at now, look, we lost most of our vulnerable seats. Uh, we've got a couple out there. If you're John Catco, God bless him. Uh, he's holding really tough ground for us. Uh, there are a number of people like that, but there aren't only three that are sitting in seats that Hillary Clinton won. So we don't have a lot of vulnerable seats. And the environment will be better. And if anything, our energy level will be higher. And I think we will have a target to run against. So I don't put it beyond our ability to retake the majority. It would be very unusual to do it, but it's not impossible to do it. And then one other thing I would, I would add, uh, we actually have the very best person to do that job. Look, if you've been around here very long, you all know Leader McCarthy. And I will just tell you, he's the best fundraiser, he's the best candidate recruiter, and he's the best political strategist we have. And they're all rolled up into one person who happens to have uh, the leadership of the entire party and the ear of the President of the United States. So um, I, I think this is going to be an extraordinarily interesting election. Uh, and uh, frankly, unlike 2008, or Frank, I inherited a committee that was heavily in debt that was literally broken. There were like seven staffers left. They were $19 million in debt. I had a treasurer. We didn't know at the time who was a crook who later went to jail because we caught him stealing and turned him in. Um, but, uh, that, you know, Steve Stivers left that committee in really good shape. Uh, I mean, it fought hard, but there's great staff there. There's great continuity there. Tom Embers brought in a great team. Uh, fundraising's going surprisingly well for having lost the majority. Debt's being paid down, and it was controlled debt. It was line of credit. So, you know, we got the weapon. I think we've got the leader. Uh, I think we've got an interesting environment. So uh, I think this next one, uh, we really do have a chance to do something that's very unusual, and that is reclaim a majority during a presidential election, uh, something that uh, Ronald Reagan couldn't do. Uh, not that he had the majority in the House, but he lost 26, and... 1982, he got back 14 of them uh, when he, in a 49-state sweep. And uh, 
you know, we can debate the political merits of the president forever. I will tell you this, he ain't carrying 49 states. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're not going to have that kind of leader at the helm. Uh, so, but we do have one that will rev up our base. And frankly, we have the chance for the Democratic Party to move so far to the left that it will push back a lot of suburban voters that we lost last time, just frankly, out of fear. Uh, we won that way, honestly, uh, four years previously, where Hillary Clinton was just an unacceptable alternative to many, many people. Uh, they always like to point out she did win by three million or, uh, votes, which is true, but she carried California by four million. So, you know, take California out of the election. She actually lost the country uh, by a million votes. Uh, and she lost, obviously, some pretty key states in places like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania that the president carried that none of us, I certainly didn't see that coming. If any of you did, my hat's off to you. You're a much bigger political prognosticator than me. So, so much for elections. Now rules. I got to tell you on rules, <laughs> this is the last place in the world I ever wanted to be in my congressional career was rules. <laughs> Somebody asked me once, I said, well, how do you, I've spent a lot of my career there. I spent my entire second term uh, there and uh, then uh, when we got the majority back, uh, I get this call from Pete Sessions, who wanted to refashion the Rules Committee, make it not an exclusive committee anymore, but bring on senior members that had expertise in other areas. He wanted a senior appropriator on there. And so um, he talked me into doing it, and uh, uh, you know, which means Boehner appointed me. And then obviously, uh, uh, Paul Ryan wanted that to stay that way, and now I wouldn't be there today if it weren't Leader McCarthy. So this is not my desired place in the world. Matter of fact, when uh, the, uh, the leader and I talked about this, he said, hey, this was after the approach uh, race. We had a very spirited race, and uh, my good friend, and i got to tell you, great appropriator, uh, Kay Granger won. I'm glad she did, quite frankly, because uh, now she can deal with it in the minority. Uh, but, uh, she, I mean, she's just great. She is really awesome, uh, great appropriator, and, and Texas tough. Uh, but, you know, I, I told the leader, I said, look, I'm not giving up approach to go over rules where I lose every committee vote nine to four, don't get to spend the dime. He said, oh, no, you can have them both, uh, which was a shock. And, um, I, and he said, I want you to do this. Uh, and uh, I said, well, I've never been there in the minority. And by the way, none of our members that are there now have ever served in the minority on rules. Dreyer did, obviously, Pete Sessions did, the membership in that era did. So this is a new experience for every member on my committee. It's a new experience for every staff member in rules to be there on the minority. It's a younger staff, a lot of turnover there. So uh, there's a lot of learning to do here uh, as well. What do you do in the minority on rules when you know you're going to lose everything? And you do a couple of things. I mean, the first thing is you're the first place where the argument is going to be made uh, about what the Democrats um, propose. And fortunately, we're going to have a lot to argue against when they finally get their act together. Now, I was actually at a Republican leadership, we have an elected leadership meeting, I sit there courtesy now of the, of the leader because of rules, and he asked me, he said, what's going on in rules? I said, not much. Uh, honestly, they don't have their act together. Look, look, at the, look at this week. What are we dealing with? Uh, suspensions and one rule vote on a veterans issue that we passed unanimously in the last Congress and the Senate didn't get around to doing it. So you know, we're not fighting anything yet because they aren't doing anything yet. The fight has all been over the government shutdown and funding and that's, you know, that's pretty easy to, uh, to make those arguments. But this is a majority that I would argue does not have an agenda. 
this is not like we actually ran on an agenda and knew what we would do if we retained the majority. Uh, this uh, majority, uh, frankly, even more so than our majority uh, that was created in 2010, just ran against the president. They didn't run on much of anything. I guarantee you, if you want to look at a Democrat from a Trump seat uh, and AOC, they ain't the same people. Uh, they can't possibly vote the same way. But the energy in the Democratic caucus is on the left. And you see Speaker Pelosi, in my view, catering to that energy. In the process, if she's not careful, she'll put 30-odd members that she has in a very, very difficult situation. I love, uh, you know, if you're from Oklahoma, we lost a seat there last time. And you look at uh, the new green agenda uh, that's emerging from the Democratic Party. You're from an oil and gas state? Bring it on. Uh, if that's what you want to vote on, to end all fossil fuels within a decade. And look, we're not against alternatives. Uh, we get uh, over a third of Oklahoma's electricity is from wind power. So we are into new types of energy uh, and have done some actually pretty interesting work on everything from switch biomass type energy as well as traditional oil and gas. But at the end of the day, uh, I sort of doubt that anybody that uh, replaced my good friend Pete Sessions in Dallas or replaced my good friend John Culberson in Houston exactly wants to run on the green agenda uh, in, uh, in the capital of, uh, of American oil industry in Houston. I mean, they're going to start spitting out stuff pretty quickly that unites Republicans and divides them. Uh, and uh, you can't run an election just against Donald Trump. You actually have to be for something. Uh, so uh, our job is, again, to lay down that initial argument. The nice thing for us is, and this is where Speaker Pelosi is in a much more difficult position than I think most people recognize. The last time she was Speaker, she had a Democratic Senate. And then two years after that, she had a Democratic president. She could put, really, beginning in 2007, almost anything she wanted on a Republican president's desk. She can't do that today. I mean, a lot of this stuff, uh, I was talking to one of my Democratic colleagues on appropriations. We had our first Labor H thing yesterday and actually made this point. I'm succeeded by Rosa DeLore, and I have a lot of affection and admiration for uh, uh, Chairman DeLore. I really do. We've... Uh, we four years in a row on labor age. We started out always in a different place. And, you know, she's not going to vote for my first bill. But four years in a row, after we went through a conference and bargained out our differences, she voted for final passage of the labor age bill every single time. So she's somebody you can deal with in, in good faith. And I told her that when we had our meeting ahead of the deal. I said, uh, Laura, my, uh, uh, Rosa, my, my aim here is to do exactly what you did. That is, I'm going to be against whatever you put out there at first uh, because I know what you got to get through to get it across the floor. But once we get in conference with Patty Murray and Roy Blunt, I guarantee you that bill can move to a place I could vote for it. And uh, if Roy Blunt can vote for it, I damn sure can vote for it. And you ain't passing a bill if Roy Blunt can't vote for your bill. So we're going to see a lot of Democratic initiatives that put their people on the hook that then go to conference committee and have no chance of becoming law whatsoever, but have become issues that our members will define themselves on. So that's, that is our, our number one job. My number one job is to get out of this job uh, and get somebody here that really wants to be the chairman of the rules committee so I can go back and be an appropriator. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what I intend to spend every waking hour doing. Um, 
And so uh, it's it's an interesting committee. I will tell you this on on rule. I remember when I first went went on, and actually that year it's my second term. I'm on committees I really love. I'm on armed services. I'm on ed and uh, workforce. Uh, you know, I'm on natural resources. So I got Indians with natural resources. I got big university stuff and ed and labor. I got John Boehner as a chairman. I'm I'm with Duncan Hunter. And, on uh, armed services, my two biggest employers are huge military bases in Oklahoma. And I think this is great. And then I get this call from Hastert, and uh, and actually first from Brian that I needed to come to rules. And I, well, I don't. And back then it was exclusive, so you could keep your seniority on on uh, Hast, but I had to give up the other two. I didn't want to be on rules. I, nobody knows what rules does in Oklahoma. Hell, I didn't know what rules did <laughs> in my second term, really. And so. Uh, but I was always raised around, uh, my mother used to say, look, if a speaker of your own party asked you to do something, there's only one answer. It's called yes. Uh, so, of course, I agreed. Two weeks later, I'm uh, at a uh, uh, fundraiser for Tom DeLay's defense fund, writing my check to try and make sure leader DeLay stays leader DeLay. And my chief of staff walks up with his telephone stand. He said, it's the speaker. I think you're about to get a cup of hemlock. And so I got on the phone, and it's Hastert, and the uh, speaker says, uh, Tom, I've been puzzling over the ethics committee, and I think you're a piece of the puzzle. Uh, I said, I, I mean, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm here to Tom DeLay fundraiser. I mean, I'll be a big target. I, I can't do this. I said, no, I, I need you to do it. And then I, I quoted my sainted mother. I said, well, my, my mother used to say, and I said, so the answer, of course, Mr. Speaker, is yes. But I have a question. And he goes, well, what's the question? I said, first rules and now ethics. Just tell me what I did. I'll never, ever do it again. <laughs> and, uh, but I learned a lot on rules. And uh, one of the things that David Dreyer taught me was how to use the Rules Committee to leverage power every place else. And as a matter of fact, when we were talking about it, I said, well, what can I do on rules? I mean, we just voted the party line. He said, well, let me give you an example. He said, Tom Reynolds and uh, Doc Hastings, who were both on the Rules Committee, that time are from the biggest apple growing districts in America, those two. And they want something from the uh, ag uh, chairman, and they, they, uh, they were told they weren't going to get it, something to help apples, some sort of deal. And so they came to me, and I just wrote the uh, chairman of the ag committee and said, unless you take care of my two members, your bill will not come through the rules committee. I said, problem was solved 48 hours later. They got it. So you can't change the bill, but you can leverage the position into something else. One of the things I'd been trying to do, uh, and my predecessors, that uh, Oklahoma actually had the second largest life uh, loss of life at Pearl Harbor, sinking of the USS Oklahoma, over 400 sailors. Everybody remembers the Arizona, over 1,200. This was the next uh, next big thing. So. Literally, 1,600 of the 2,400 people that lose their lives are on those two capital ships. Uh, there's a big, obviously, Arizona memorial. Appropriately so, there was no memorial in Pearl Harbor. We had been trying for years to get one. I'd go to these reunions of uh, sailors uh, who were all in their 70s or 80s back then, and they would ring a bell at the beginning of the ceremony for their comrade that had died, and their deal was, we need a memorial. And so uh, I'm thinking, well, I'm on rules. Uh, so I went to Duncan Hunter, and I explained my problem. I said, could you put something in the manager's amendment uh, that would require the Navy to give us a spot in Pearl Harbor within one year? We'll pay for everything. We'll build a memorial. Don't worry. It's not going to be cost. But we need a site. 
He did it. Uh, you know, we passed the bill. Two days later, I had five admirals in my office telling me how they were always going to do this. And why was that? Why didn't I just work through channels? So you can do some amazing things. And Terry uh, Lace was kind enough to mention Native American stuff. That's actually, uh, you know, something we'll do on rules. Uh, because Native American issues are almost never partisan. Uh, they really revolve around sovereignty. It's one, that, that caucus is effective no matter who's in power if it knows what it's doing. And I guarantee you I can get a lot of stuff done in rules that won't come through the committee working with Jim McGovern, who has actually got an understanding of these issues and is kind enough. So you figure out how you leverage the position. But job number one is to make the argument to get back in the majority and to set us up with the right arguments to move into conference where once we're there, we're off Nancy Pelosi's turf and we're in the room with the President of the United States and more importantly, uh, with the Senate of the United States. And so uh, uh, actually, Senator Blunt and I uh, have already scheduled a meeting. We actually coordinate our efforts, uh, have for four years to literally sit down. This is where we're going to end up. This is what you're going to propose. This is what I'm going to propose. This is where we're going to compromise. And so that will that will be set up, and uh, we'll frankly work together. You'll see, actually, across the approach line. I, I hope my other colleagues are doing the same thing uh, with their subcommittees as well. Let me just end with this, uh, and I'm happy to take questions or maybe late. This uh, interesting time in the history of the Republican Party. And I grew up really in, in the Nixon, and I always mention Nixon when you mention uh, Reagan and Bush. I mean, you know, Nixon created the modern Republican coalition in 1972 that Reagan then recreated and reconstituted in 1980. We lost, obviously, because of Watergate. We blew it. But you could see the outlines of a Republican governing coalition as early as 1972 that emerged in 1980 and then in Congress came to full fruition in 1994. Uh, we're clearly leaving that era, and we're in something very, very different. Um, and parts of it honestly concern me. Uh, in terms of where we're headed as a party. But uh, parts of it uh, also tell me that uh, there's something here, just as there was in 1964, and obviously we went through a tough election, but nothing as catastrophic as 64, to remake a Republican coalition. And I actually saw a glimpse of it, I think, uh, on Tuesday night. Um, Donald Trump is the most unorthodox, unusual, unconventional political figure I've ever seen in my life. So anybody that tries to predict anything about him is almost always wrong. I have been wrong consistently uh, about the president, and he has surprised me both for good and ill uh, on occasion. But I did not go up, uh, go into the chamber Tuesday night expecting to hear a presidential conventional address. And that's what we heard. That was the best speech he has given since he's been president of the United States. It's also the first time... I've seen him actually reach beyond his base to try and do what conventional politicians do. He can't win the next election with just his base. Uh, he's going to have to bring some other people in. That's going to require a change in style uh, and tone and temperament a little bit. And it's going to call for defining the enemy. And he did both of those things on Tuesday night. He changed his style a little bit. Uh, I don't know any Republican who wasn't comfortable defending the president after the State of the Union address. He avoided temptation. Uh, you know, in other words, he didn't take the cheap shot. There was no name calling. He didn't go off the script. Uh, and he offered compromise. And he also began defining the opposition. That line about the socialism was not an accidental line. It's also one, by the way, that Lee McCarthy uses 
quite a bit if you listen to him about redefining where the Democratic Party is. This is not, this may not be Ronald Reagan and George Bush's Republican Party, but I guarantee you the Democratic Party isn't Bill Clinton's Democratic Party anymore either. Uh, both have, have moved in different ways uh, to the edge. I would actually argue the energy in their party is more out there uh, on the edge than, than our party. So uh, in the next election, uh, we'll have a choice. Uh, and that choice needs to not just be at the presidential level, it needs to be defining all the way down. The Democrats have their own fate in their hands. Uh, if they nominate somebody that is to the left, I mean, that's going to be the campaign. Trump will change it. From, and if the economy is still good, I mean, it's a lot to run. When you got a 4% unemployment rate, you just created 300,000 jobs. I mean, uh, when you have Chairman Brady here uh, in a couple of weeks, thank him, because he, lay, he and Paul Ryan laid the groundwork for economic policy and deregulation and taxation has clearly worked and extended the recovery. So if that can sustain itself, and I'm actually, uh, you know, pretty, strangely enough, pretty excited about this president on foreign affairs. Uh, I look forward to voting to, uh, for the NAFTA redo. I hope we get a China deal. I'm proud of the president for what he's doing in Venezuela right now. Uh, I'm proud of uh, what he's done. Uh, you know, people talk about Russia all the time. Really. I mean, I know something about international history. If you're the Russians and you just managed to provoke the United States into its largest military buildup in 15 years, and you've got a Republican president who's uh, cajoled Europe into spending over $30 billion more collectively, which is about half your total defense budget, uh, on its defense, and that number's going up. Uh, and if, you're, uh, if you've managed to get a president who sends lethal aid, uh, which the last administration would not do to the Ukraine, a president that enforces sanctions, a president that when he draws a red line in Syria actually enforces the red line, I don't know that that's a real good thing from a Russian standpoint. And if you're a president who has at least gotten the North Koreans, and I don't trust them as far as I could throw them, but they're not shooting missiles over Japan anymore. And they are talking with us. And we are further away from war, not closer to it, than we were when this president took office. He has a lot to run on. Uh, if he'll frame it the right way, and if for God's sake, he will just let his, his uh, team do their job and talk about peace, prosperity, transformation, and define the Democratic Party, he could be a very interesting candidate. Uh, in the next couple of years. So with that, uh, thanks for having me. It's always fun to come to Tom, we elected uh, Congresswoman Carol Miller, West Virginia. How do we increase the number of women coming into the party uh, and get them up to the... Well, the first thing is listen to, you know, guys shouldn't be deciding this, women should be deciding this. And so, uh, you know, at least Stefanik, who is really... Uh, just one of the brightest and the best, uh, is uh, obviously actively engaged in this, this kind of effort. We did have over 100 female candidates last time. You know, one of the ones that I supported, and I was really disappointed, honestly, I think because it was a missed opportunity, uh, was in the Martha McSally seat, Donna Peterson out there, Hispanic, uh, president of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, she didn't get any help, and she got 46% of the vote. Uh, we, uh, with Martha on the ballot, you know, obviously she didn't win statewide, but that's her congressional seat. She certainly won her congressional seat. Uh, I think we had a chance there. So we need to be a little smarter. I think we're a lot more sensitive to it now. Um, and uh, I think we got some people working on it. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, people have to run. And they have to be able to win primaries mostly on their own. 
You know, you're not going to get the NRCC heavily involved in primaries. It shouldn't do that. But there are other Republicans that can and will. Lease is obviously stepping up in that that way, is building a, a, a pack to do that. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, recruit the candidates, hope for a better year, and then be willing to fund them. And, uh, and I remember uh, when, uh, of course, it was a woman-on-woman race in 2008, uh, when uh, Len Jenkins was running against Nancy Boyd, who had taken out Jim Ryan. I mean, if you're in Kansas, Jim Ryan, how does Jim Ryan lose a race in Kansas, the greatest, uh, you know, miler of, of all time? Um, and yet he did. And um, a lot of people said, we well, can't beat Boyda. Well, if you met Len Jenkins, you knew you could beat anybody with Len Jenkins. Because she then beat Ryan in the primary and then rolled over Boyd in a bad year when we lost 21 other seats. So uh, candidate quality is what matters more than gender, but there's plenty of qualified. My mother was winning races in the 1970s in places where no Republicans had ever won. Uh, the NRC, or the RNC actually did a survey after she won her first state house race in 78. And that year, 63 new Republican, uh, or women, 63 new women won uh, legislative seats in America. 62 of them were Republicans. And so the RNC sort of caught that, what the hell's going on? So they went out and surveyed these places where the women had run. And, uh, you know, there's stereotypes about every party. And, of course, Republicans, they're rich, they're unfeeling, they don't care about people like you. People could think that about a Republican. They had a hard time thinking that about a woman. Uh, and if you, any survey, people will always, I used to, and when I was in the business, we used to ask the questions. So we, we did Mary Fallon, we did quite a few female candidates in Oklahoma. And we'd always start out, hey, does gender make any difference in how you vote roughly? Oh, no, of course not. Okay, between men and women, who's more honest? Oh, women. Uh, Between men and women, who works harder? Oh, women. Uh, Between men and women, who has more values uh, in common? Oh, women. I mean, if you don't think there's not an electoral advantage in favor of women because they are a breath of fresh air and they are breaking the traditional political mold in an era of change, then you're not very smart and you can't read a poll. So uh, we ought to find those kind of people and get them interested in running. Uh, and then, again, good candidates will win. And being a woman is only a disadvantage when it comes to fundraising, quite frankly, because so many of them have not been involved in the political fundraising end of the business. That's the problem. But their innate popularity is much better than a three-piece suit a white male Republican. You want to start out with a woman if you can, and then make sure you get the money. If they're good, they're going to win.